difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Keith Phipps. Once again, our regular co-host Genevieve Koski is out, but our special guest Joe Quazala is in. Hello again, Joe. Hey guys, so excited that you're making me the new permanent host of the podcast. <laughs> this is going to be an exciting era for all of us, and uh, I'm sure your, your audience are, are they're thrilled. So this is just, yeah. this is very cool. And no one will save them. Yeah, we, we I mean, <laughs> amid, amid uh, we're, we're making a, a mid-podcast full-time commitment to you, Joe. It's very, uh, very spe- it's a special uh, moment for and us. And I, I appreciate it, and it makes me, makes me feel great. That Maybe you're rendering me dot, 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 speechless, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> we all are very tired. We've been doing this for a, a long time. So we're actually, we're letting you test the waters here, but we're actually all going to bow out one by one <laughs> and see if you notice. <laughs> Until Just I'm like, Left alone, mm-hmm. babbling to myself. Straight up, yep. It's like the we're, movies that, that don't exist. Last show, where, where eventually it's just roadies playing the instruments. Uh, that's <laughs> what this podcast is going to be. Uh, so last week we talked about Under the Skin, Jonathan Glazer's 2013 science fiction film about an alien invasion told from the perspective of a lonely alien. This week the tables turn a little to follow another solitary woman in Brian Duffield's No One Will Save You. But here she's a human trying to fend off extraterrestrials. In a film with virtually no dialogue, Caitlin Deaver stars as Bryn, a seamstress in her 20s who lives by herself in her childhood home in the countryside. Before we can learn much about her, Bryn is under attack from a chittering race of humanoid aliens who seem to want to do what a lot of movie aliens like to do. Suck humans into UFOs with a tractor beam, subject them to probes, possess them like pod people in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and so forth. Bryn proves to be more resourceful and resilient than expected, however, but she's wildly overmatched. She also has no support from the people in her community, who greet her with hard glares and will not talk to her, which fits into the film's conceit quite well. Throughout the course of the film, we learn that something terrible has happened to a childhood best friend named Maud, and the townspeople hold her responsible. But we only get the truth in drips and drabs, which makes Bryn as enigmatic to us as she is to her alien attackers. We'll talk more about her backstory and Duffield's ambitious approach to a familiar genre after the break. Obvious first question, what did everyone think of No One Will Save You? For me, it was difficult to watch Under the Skin. Like you like we've been saying, one of the best science fiction films of the <laughs> uh-huh. century. And then to watch a, a film that is going to be hard to, to compare immediately after. But you know, there, there are things I liked about this film, but at the same time, I felt like there were decisions that were made that felt a little gimmicky, you know, under the skin. It, there's not a lot of dialogue, but it feels like when there is dialogue and makes sense, there were moments in this film where I thought like people would probably say something here, but because it almost felt like a, 
almost like a film school challenge, you knew that nobody was going to say anything and that at times kind of took me out of it. I bought into that conceit pretty easily because it's, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, if I can buy into aliens invading, I could probably buy into people not speaking. Uh, but I know what you, I do know what you mean. That there were, there was a few moments, like, as you say, that speech would obviously would enter into it i guess like i like this movie i wanted to like it a lot more i i I thought like in the first like the opening i thought well here we go this is like a really you know interesting conceptually interesting technically well executed i I like caitlin deaver uh and it never really let up but also never really kind of picked up for me either Mm -hmm. and i'm sure we'll be talking about the ending but i'll just leave that uh i'll just leave that alone for now I think I might be on yeah. the high end of uh, appreciation for this film in this group. Maybe just because my expectations were not terribly high. I watched the trailer for it and kind of thought, okay, it's it kind of looks like signs without any of the Shyamalanitude, um, without any of the big religious themes, maybe with like less going on. It kind of feels maybe like 10 Cloverfield Lane without the social commentary and also without, you know, the, the charm of that uh, incredible cast. And this kind of looks like your standard issue alien spin on a home invasion story. And then it turns out that's like the first 10 minutes of the movie. And then we just go on from there. The fact that the film kept iterating impressed me. Some of the kind of like later confrontations are shot in just increasingly ambitious and weird and unsettling ways. I like that we keep kind of discovering new wrinkles to what the aliens are doing and and what they want without ever really understanding fully what's going on. And I I think the ending is pretty startling. So yeah, I, I ended up liking this film quite a bit more than I thought I was going to from the trailer in particular. I'll tell you something else I liked about it, although this changes a little bit later on, but I like that it's just plain vanilla big-eyed gray aliens who abduct people in their flying saucers like let's just keep it as classic <laughs> yeah. as possible <laughs> they are they, they are i think it's saying as much of the introduction it's like wow you really just have these are the these are classic aliens it's halloween sure. costume alien mm-hmm. yeah for sure for sure though i mean i guess you'd have to fit in a pretty pretty thin pretty thin, <laughs> pretty thin, thin, pretty thin but costume. you know with a little bit of work i think we could all get there and it's a flexibility as, as well there'd be a lot a lot of work toe, toe uh, flexibility in particular that was uh <laughs> of of the kind of innovations of the alien design i think that was probably the uh outside of the uh kind of ymca level akimbo arms and legs yeah, yeah the, the toe the toes are like well is it, it was like uh flintstone toes or something yeah, right? yeah twinkle toes kind of like, did we call it yeah those little twinkle toes i was expecting the sound effect and you know duffield did not deliver <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It delivers. It tries to deliver a more menacing sound effect, which is unfortunate. Yeah, um, we 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 need we need to pause for Genevieve to drop in the sound effect <laughs> that we are all now experiencing in our heads. Just keep your eye on the ball, Bonnie boy. Yeah, I think anyone anyone our age who watched Saturday morning cartoons <laughs> probably knows that sound. I, yeah, yeah, I, so I th- thought it was really interesting that the trailer shows, quote unquote, the alien. The what idea else is it do? of I mean, it's right. It happens right away. I, well, uh, Duffield also has joked in interviews that they in the trailer they use every single shot in the movie that doesn't include an alien, which is not remotely true. But he is kind of making the point that it's it's chock a block 
It's it's a wall to wall aliens. It's aliens all the way down, young man. And you know the trailer really shocked me because normally in a trailer you just keep teasing at what is the thing what is the thing going to look like because you want to make people come see the movie in order to find out what the monster looks like and instead you get it on screen well that's because there's like 10 different versions of these aliens and just seeing one of them doesn't actually give away nearly as much as you uh you think it's going to you know there was that was that was one of the pleasant surprises of the movie was even having kind of gotten the reveal of the monster in the uh, the trailer there was just a sense of oh no there's a lot more to discover what the hell is that thing yeah, they're different. Yeah, different shapes. And so, though they should have just gone all the way, like Gremlins two, the whole thing. I'll just like really make the aliens distinct in different ways. One's got <laughs> lipstick and uh, curly hair, and <laughs> exactly. one's wearing a, like a little lab coat, and little glasses. One is electricity. Yeah, this is a, that's a good idea. Yeah, I think I'm probably on the on the lower end on this one. I just I for two reasons one it was like i was initially grabbed by the film i think you know and i think throughout it is well done i mean is it te- it's te- technically you know accomplished though not dazzling i think i think this in order for this concept to work you need like a de palma level visual genius and i don't think i don't think this i don't think duffield quite has the chops for it but but it's it's a well-made movie but my thing was like after a certain point it was like oh okay, this is what this movie is. <laughs> and it's not really going to reveal that much to me, you know, that much more to me. I, I, there wasn't a whole lot more that I found all that gripping about it. And the other thing, and the bigger flaw to me is I think the backstory part of this is just horribly mismanaged. I was just thinking, oh no, they're really, just, this thing with, with Ma, these questions that we have about why everyone is treating Bryn the way they are, like that's just going to be dragged out the whole film and then and then when we finally get to the why of it all it's just it's so deflating you know it just and, and then it leads to an ending that di- that really didn't resonate with me at all so I, I, that's kind of most of my complaint has to do with the way you know the very thin bit of story was handled it was definitely a classic example of you know one of my favorite Noel Murray essays uh, ban ban the backstory this is a, this is a serious ban the backstory movie and then I think this is a genre exercise. It's is a it is as Joe said, kind of a film school exercise that's pretty well done. But I don't know. Yeah, so I was a little bit, I would say, a little more mixed and negative on it than uh, than uh, others. Oh, Scott, we haven't had a good Donnie Brook in a while. I don't know that I can, uh, I, you know, muster huge passion for defending this movie yeah. uh, in the way I've defended some things from your your cold hearted clutches. Oh, it's usually the but, other way around, though, Tasha. Usually, I'm the enthusiast, and you're you're the one you're the one bursting my bubble. Yeah, fair. So maybe we can get something out of the role reversal here. But mostly, as much as I like that band, the backstory essay and and the whole idea, and as as much as Noel kind of taught me to look at movies differently with that piece, and I appreciate it. Here, I understand you're certainly not the only one to feel that that backstory is uh, deflating. And I, you know, I have heard words like dumb. Uh, To me, it was maybe less about her, her background being objectively devastating in a way that was worth the weight and much more about the weight that it's carried on her. You know, the feeling of judgment that she gets from Maud's parents in particular and the degree to which she's like kind of arranged her life around shame enable the story for me and particularly enable the end, which I, I liked the ending a lot. 
And it, it doesn't work without that arc of dealing with grief and guilt and just kind of hugging it to herself to the point where it's her personality. The way the movie ends up navigating that, I thought was interesting. And uh, I'm a little sad that you find it uh, so dismissible. Uh, okay. So, I mean, let, let's, uh, uh, let's get to the ending here. Cause I, I'm, <laughs> I, I think that the defense that you could make, I mean, I think maybe the setup for the, for the ending is, is her interest in making this, the, you know, a model of the town, right? That's like, that's one of the things, one of her pastimes, I guess. I mean, because at the end, the, the, the reality that she is living is a wholly artificial one. That is that the, I guess, aliens have sort of kindly uh, uh, managed for her and that she is embracing wholeheartedly. She looks, she reminds me a little bit of like Pearl in the, in the the X and Pearl movies of just like somebody who's just like, has this kind of almost disturbing level of, you know, enthusiasm about what is kind of a twisted situation. And I just, I don't feel like the film got us there. It doesn't feel consistent with her character to me. It doesn't feel like, it, it seems like a strangely pitiless and selfish way if i'm reading it correctly i mean i guess there is tasha i read your uh your interview with the director and and i guess there is at least some debate as to whether or not she is under the influence this is her delusion uh and she's under the influence of aliens or that everyone else is and she's just choosing to live among them those are the two most common readings of that ending right yeah, or, or the idea that she's still in some way uh, within a hallucination. Right, right. I, I think the questions are, is what you see on screen really happening? And if so, is she possessed by aliens or not? And my interpretation, you know, uh, when I when I talked to Duffield, he was very careful to not come out and literally say it. But at the same time, I, I think what he's trying to communicate is, I just don't think that ending has any impact if it's uh if it's a fiction or if she's possessed you know where all of the the irony and weight and relief come from is the idea that she's been so isolated and so guilty and so afraid for so long that she can live with aliens more comfortably than she can live with humans that she can find everything she wants in this like artificial condition uh, that the aliens have provided for her is a, kind of a, a little terrarium that she gets to live in. Yeah, same. That's how I read it too. I just didn't really buy that as the character, a choice the character would make. I guess either interpretation. I'm curious why the aliens now work on her house. Is that supposed to be more like it's a community village thing? Because it just felt like they were groundskeeping her house. No? I think it's a community thing. Yeah. I, I think that they've created a a weird little Eden and exactly how much, you know, have they, have they just reprogrammed people to be less destructive or do they have consciousnesses within the people that they possess? Like, are they doing this out of some kind of like misguided philanthropy or just to keep humanity from, from going to the stars and blowing everything up there? We don't know. There's just, there's a lot we don't understand about the aliens motivation. I think what's significant is that they scan her, they see her past, they see who she is, they see that she would rather like live in the real world even as it is going to be in their hands than live within a delusion. And they see that all she needs to be happy and accept her circumstance is a community that accepts her and 
So they give her that, you know, I, I think that they're about their alien business and what exactly that is. We don't know, but whatever it is, she doesn't care. What she cares about is that she's finally accepted. That's a huge leap to me. That's the leap that I can't make is Hmm. her accepting her, is her acceptance of a situation that she, of course, has to understand as being manufactured in for her to, in her, the level of happiness that she displays is so odd you know it's not it's not it's so you know uh against what we've seen from her before this was a very practical minded person who is who has who we've seen basically spend the whole movie coming up with you know being resourceful being resilient coming up with these kind of solutions to try to stay alive and that's that's about as grounded a, a thing as a person could do so to get to this point where, where she could make this kind of odd cognitive leap into you know into where she's out of the ending i just i can't make that leap with her i don't think the film the the only way in which the film makes that which makes sense to me is is her pastime is her hobby of just kind of like constructing the community i guess or in her home constructing these 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 models which may be you know a, a fantasy of the way that she w- wish things were or the way that w- she wishes things could return it feels like it's selling out the character for cheap irony, and that kind of really kind of bugged me. Kind of left me with a sour taste for a movie that I otherwise pretty much enjoyed. Yeah, I just I disagree. I think that within the the dream, the delusion that uh, the aliens put her in, she's spent all of this time writing letters to to Maud, apology letters and and update letters, like explaining herself and abdignating herself just over and over and over, you know, groveling for forgiveness that she can't actually offer Maud because Maud is dead. And then within this, you know, uh, sort of a fictional construct, she gets to come face to face with Maud and apologize to her. It's the first and I think maybe only actual intelligible line of dialogue in the movie. Mm-hmm. Duffield is is telling you, I mean, he could not be semaphoring harder that this is a turning point, that this is hugely significant, that this is maybe the most important thing that's happened to her since Maud's death is this moment where she can finally speak, where she can finally vocalize the thing that has been like living in her chest the entire time since Maud's death. She finally gets to say, I'm sorry. And it helps her let go of that guilt. It helps her move on. And I think it also helps her move on that, you know, possessed alien people are so willing to accept her. I also would be uh, happy and singy and dancy if I spent 10 years under the weight of feeling that I had murdered my best friend and then found a way to ask for her forgiveness and then was suddenly accepted by the community that loathed me. I'd I'd sing and dance and gather flowers, too. I don't know what y'all are going on about. But it's a a false – it's it's living in bad faith, though. I mean, these are not real people. These are – they're body snatched it isn't a meaningless life she has community she has uh acceptance maybe it's the acceptance it's, of a real. weird alien it's, it's 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 like living in the matrix all that had to happen was all those people had to ostensibly die <laughs> and now you get to have a little utopia unless they're yeah, in their it's... own utopia if we were to believe what happened to caitlin deaver when she gets the thing inside her that she goes to her place if they're all in their place 
And then their bodies are living out the alien stuff, presumably. Who knows? Maybe half of those uh, people also rejected uh, alien symbiosis and were happy to live in a a new, peaceable, kind of schmigadoony community of uh, song and and dance and color and liveliness. But I mean, I just see them all as zombies, though. I mean, I I can't see it as a happy ending, but I also can't see it as an ending that's consistent with the character that we've gotten to know. It just feels like, you know, an arbitrary attempt to be shocking. Now, there's no, I mean, certainly one of the things that I've learned from many years of doing this podcast is that you you can't logically argue people out of a, an emotional response, or at least y'all can't logically argue me out of my emotional responses. <laughs> so I, I'm definitely or, or, not. Yeah, or anything. <laughs> we, we, you are very good at uh, defending your uh, position. My opinions are uh, rarely entirely arbitrary. They're 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 thought through and arguable, if not uh, something that anybody else in the world shares. But <laughs> I will say, I guess, as a sort of a, a last ditch uh, interpretation in all this, that I don't necessarily think it's meant to be uh, seen as a happy ending. I I think this is a very dark ending about somebody who was rejected and and miserable and guilty and in a, a very very dark place coming to a different place where she's willing to accept this delusion in order to be happy and feel accepted. And I don't think it's meant to be a happy ending at all. I I think it's very dark. I think this is a horror movie with a horror movie ending. And, you know, it's not really any different from who's the the main character in uh, the To Serve Man, the original Twilight Zone episode? Uh, Bart Simpson. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm not sure what the character is. That's the is. version I'm more familiar with. <laughs> it's just like the the end of the Twilight Zone episode to serve man, where the narrator who's been telling you this whole story has been refusing to eat because he he knows he's just being fattened up by the aliens, and then it it ends with him giving in and you know sitting down to a meal. I think in the end, you know, you're saying that it's inconsistent with her character because she's worked so hard to survive. But in the end, the aliens offer her, you know, they're not going to kill her. She's trying not to die throughout the entire movie. And at the end, she's offered instead of death, kind of everything she's ever wanted, you know, expiation for her sins and acceptance and community. It kind of flabbergasts me a little that you wouldn't think somebody who's been a miserable social pariah wrapped around her pain wouldn't accept kind of a a false universe in exchange for letting go of her guilt, being forgiven by everybody and living happily ever after. It's, It's a dark and bitter ending, but it seems real. Well, I mean, it's kind of like that. I mean, that sort of therapy element of it is not that. That's that's not a, a great selling point to me. But I, and I, the other thing is, like, I feel like the only way any of that is meaningful, that acceptance is meaningful, is if the members of the community understand her and forgive her and are actually those people and not body snatched or whatever they are at the end of, end of the movie. Uh, which is not to say that I think the movie is not the end of the movie is not dark. It is. It is a little bit disturbing and off in a way that doesn't does certainly does not suggest a happy ending it's sort of kind of a fake happy ending i just it just didn't really work for me and i and, and i and i'm a fan of i'm a fan of of bold and ambitious you know out, out of the blue type of uh, uh endings i thought i think i mean i i like i admire the attempt it just didn't quite just didn't really land for me 
uh, Joe, I don't I don't feel like we got your full unpacking of the ending on all of this. I, I feel like I'm arguing back and forth with my my usual co-host. <laughs> yeah, you sorry. told us what you thought kind of about the the overall movie, but I, I am curious for you to unpack the ending for yourself. Well, you know, it, we had mentioned inconsistency with Caitlin Deaver's character, but for me, it, it was more inconsistency with the alien characters who throughout the film appear to be on a destruction path and are targeting Caitlin Deaver and they are fighting and she keeps killing them and that they would then see her trauma and then go, ah, she's been through a lot. Let's give her <laughs> her own... She's seen enough. Let like, her, go. Uh, her own utopia or, you know, a community. I just, I, that to me was what was not exactly clicking because I, I, it didn't seem like... They, I mean, I don't think that was their mission. They see, it seemed to be very kind of classic. We're here to destroy all humans kind of thing or replace them. And for them to have sympathy just because, you know, she went through a traumatic thing, that wasn't exactly working for me. I mean, nothing more traumatic than being attacked by aliens as well. (laughs) Everyone you're attacking is going through trauma. Then is that not, are you going to solve all these problems? Uh, That's what the next movie is about, is her processing the trauma of being attacked by aliens in the first movie. New aliens have to come down to then solve that trauma. That's that's always the the major insight that aliens get uh, when they probe humans. It's like, man, they really don't like being probed. This is very traumatic. Oh, this is, they're going to remember this i guess on some level my interpretation of all of that is just whatever their agenda is it isn't entirely clear to us i just assume that they're off i don't know mining all the cobalt out of the mountains or something you know something alien uh who knows maybe they they came to earth for spicy mustard and it, it can't be had anywhere else in the galaxy and they're off eating all of the spicy mustard and like leaving her to her little community but i i don't i don't feel like the movie necessarily suggests that they build a happy community in order to make her the special snowflake feel good about her trauma i feel like they just recognize like Oh, if we keep pushing like this form of assimilation on her, she'll keep fighting back and killing us. If we just stop doing that, she'll leave us alone to eat spicy mustard all day long. This is the most uh, efficient path forward. Assimilate everybody but her, eh, and then uh, and then we're good. I like your your Frank Herbert scenario of, of uh, spicy mustard mustard uh, rather than but the spicy uh, mustard the spicy, must spicy flow. mustard is life <laughs> didn't you notice at the end everybody's eyes had turned yellow and they were all seeing the future <laughs> uh so in both uh this film and of course in uh, under the skin there's going to be a lot of interesting connections especially with, with regard to uh, aliens uh maybe, maybe uh you know seeing how we live a little bit so we're going to uh, return with connections. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together, talk about all the things they have in common. Tasha, this was a pairing suggested by you. So I I was curious about what you felt was like kind of the main hook that reminded you of Under the Skin. Well, honestly, the the main hook was the limited dialogue, which was not the uh, discussion point that we 
had planned to launch into first. But when you ask that question, it it just kind of comes down to how little dialogue of significance there is in Under the Skin. There's a, there is a lot more talking, but we never really talked about um, whether any of y'all have read the Faber book that this is sort of very loosely based on. I've read a Faber book. I've read The Crimson <laughs> Petal and the White. I've not read this Faber book, though. Oh my gosh, Keith, I finally got around to reading The Crimson Petal and the White this year for the first time. One of the things that I was thinking about the entire time I was reading it was, wow, Keith read this like 20 years ago. Regardless. <laughs> Your memory is probably a lot better, sharper than mine. Uh, I do remember like it, though. It's nothing like this whatsoever. It's just this really fulsome uh, historical novel, mostly about prostitutes in London. And much like Under the Skin, I think Michelle Faber is very, very interested in the relationships between men and women. And The Crimson Petal and the White is very much about the predatory behavior of men who socialize with and enjoy the custom of prostitutes and how little power the prostitutes have and where they find the power in it. Like stylistically and just kind of in terms of, of setting, in terms of tone, in terms of prose, it could not be different from Under the Skin, which is much more kind of peeled back and simplified uh, prose narrative. But they do have a lot in common in terms of just thinking about men and women a lot. But Under the Skin, the book is a very, very talky novel. Uh, the aliens talk a lot amongst themselves about farming humanity and what it means and whether it's a good or a bad thing and how other aliens feel back on the planet and the sociology of it all. And seeing that all stripped away to this movie where most of the dialogue is this kind of like empty small talk, this these almost meaningless exchanges of you're gorgeous and thanks, want to come back to my place. Just when I, when I watched uh, No One Will Save You and there was so little dialogue and just these like long stretches of worrying about survival, it, Under the Skin is just where it took me back to. Yeah, it gives you so many options because, you know, if, you, if you're if you not going to fill the air with dialogue, you know, as a filmmaker, that means you need to, to use the soundtrack, you know, for something else. And, and, and so we talked a lot about the complexity of the soundtrack for Under the Skin, the, 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 uh, the, the way that... Uh, um, the score is is used, you know, both both uh, for sort of texture and for you know sort of expressions, you know, underlining emotion. You know, the way that natural sound is it plays a part when it has to play a part, and I and I think with you know I, I the use of sound in No One Will Save You is not as radical certainly, but it's quite skillful. And without the chatter, you can really kind of. You know the 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 uh, attack sequences, which are pretty frequent. You can really kind of focus in on uh, a lot of that 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 sound and that and that and it can have the impact that it's going to have on you without kind of listening to a character talk to another character or talk to a volleyball or whatever. It's going to be it works as far as it goes. Yeah, I mean, I'd say sometimes uh, an effective film score is one that you're not noticing, right? That was kind of my experience of like, whereas under the skin, you are you are thinking about like, oh, this is this is fucking me up. But uh, the other film, you're like, yeah, this is this is competently uh, accompanying, <laughs> uh -huh. not not to be you know too dismissive, but this is like, yeah, perfectly matching what is what is kind of happening here. 
I mean, it's tough. I mean, it's a tough comparison in the sense that, that, you know, other than the, I mean, there are certainly unconventional elements of no one will save you, but it also is very committed to its genre and and for kind of delivering something that is going to be, you know, thrilling for audiences and kind of kind of relentless and then a little bit uh a little bit strange and provocative as well uh that's you know there's a it's it's agenda is not quite as is not nearly as ambitious under the skin which is a a, you know a a tough break for this movie but um but i think one of one of the other major connections that we should talk about is the alienated or uh solitary women in this movie because they are you know i mean they, they they have a certain amount in common they have a lot of common. I, I, I would, I would say Caitlin Deaver's character, Bren. Obviously, there's, there's not as far for her to go, being a consistently a human through the whole thing. But her journey is certainly less complicated than the females, just because she basically just survives. There's not really a lot of, apart from, I guess, forgiving herself for her role in her best friend's death, she doesn't really change that much. And then until, again, the end, but, you know, we've kind of gone over that uh, again. So it's a much less dynamic character in many ways, although I do really like Deaver's performance. I, I find her uh, a very winning presence uh, pretty much in anything she's in. I mean, I think you could say, though, that with what both of these women, the, their isolation, their sense of loneliness strongly impacts the decisions that they make you know particularly with Deaver's character with Brins towards the end of the movie and you know the kind of where she kind of finds herself is it's it's not anywhere that we it's hard enough to imagine as it is it is impossible to imagine if she just had anyone else in her life and and um and you know and it becomes an interesting acting challenge too for both Scarlett Johansson and and for uh, Caitlin Deaver to act against either nothing or act against in Scarlett Johansson's case a lot of non-actors it's kind of interesting just to kind of try to register you know their internal life even if Bryn's internal life is like ah I gotta get away from this uh alien who's attacking me I think Bryn's inner life is a lot more complicated than you give it credit for but but, you know once the aliens attack you kind of just have to like put aside all of your stuff and just kind of figure out how not to get killed That is fair, but I think it's interesting that Bryn effectively is isolated from humanity and solves the problem by assimilating with the aliens. And the female is isolated from the aliens and tries to solve her problem by assimilating with humanity. One of them is much more successful at that than the other. Uh, One of them is much more threatened by that than the other. So they just strike me as being on extremely similar paths that they, they walk in very different ways. And I think the similarity we're all overlooking is they both managed to kill someone with a big rock to the head. <laughs> that is Too a very serious. important similarity. <laughs> that is, that, yeah, I actually thought about that connection. Oh, you know, you 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 watch you watch No One Will Save You, and then you you, th- you think of the whole time. It's like, what what, what what did she hit somebody in the rock? <laughs> did she hit her friend with her head with a rock pull, or something? Pull a scar on the beach there. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Wow, I I had not really drawn that line, and that's pretty amazing. I thought that was why I thought that was why you you just wanted to kind of put together a couple movies where people get hit in the head with rocks. (laughs) Wait, I mean that's that's a letterboxed uh, list right there. (laughs) 
I mean, it, it does sort of speak. We talked a bit uh, with as far as uh, under the skin goes in the first segment about how the female does not have any inherent weaponry. You know, she's she's alien, but she's not an alien with a hidden stinger. I, I guess I keep coming back to like the species movies. Mm, yeah, I thought about and, that, too, honestly. You know, yeah, exactly. I, you know, another series that's very much about uh, gender relationships and predator prey relationships. Uh, the female does not have a giant spike that she can just stick through the back of men's heads whenever she uh, is is d- kind of over and done with it. You know, she's not secretly a kind of like alien uh, praying mantis thing. Neither of these women have like a whole lot in terms of like physical capacity to assault others or or defend themselves against assault. And they have to rely on their wits. The female has to rely on some very, very lame um, kind of uh, flirt dialogue. Uh, one of the things that maybe took me a little by surprise and amused me rewatching it is just, it's possible they just gave her a phrase book that's like, do you think I'm pretty? Are you alone? Do you have any family? Will anyone miss you? Are you tasting yeah, no, it, succulent? It, 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 it does sound like sort of a, uh, an automated call tree or something where mm-hmm. this response gets this response. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of kind of thoughtfulness uh, to the flirting there, except when she's uh, dealing with Adam Pearson's character, who she tries some new lines with because he's so recalcitrant. But again, when she actually needs to harm somebody, the best she can do is find a rock. And Bryn does not find a rock in order to fight the aliens, but Again, she's she's just got to rely on her wits, her wits and her surroundings. You know, she is not, um, despite living out in the country by herself, she does not have a handy shotgun or uh, like a lot of weaponry experience or a convenient background in the military that could let her like disappear into a garage and come out with an A-team van. You know, these are two women that have to kind of... tools. She's got scissors and stuff. That'll, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's she something. could totally she also, like whip you know, up a, a cute little dress. She has the access alien. to uh, the one, I guess, if we're looking at both these movies, the surefire way to kill an alien, which is gasoline in a match. That's true. Very, very important. So many, so many connections here. Yeah, I'm, I'm committed to making the most surface level connections. I love the little surface level connections in these things, though. We we talk a lot about, you know, uh, big, important themes and, and how these movies work. But I kind of love it when I can find like one of those little, oh, wait, <laughs> they both bash people's heads in with the rocks, don't they? Kind of thing. Oh, that, that's always my favorite part of going to a film festival and seeing five movies a day or something it's just like somehow there becomes a connection between some you know uh romanian film you saw one day and then that then uh some french thing you saw the other day and it's just it's just uh it's just like how are how are two movies about this very specific thing at at the same festival it's impossible so to get back to the the connections too i mean this was something that we kind of like touched on a little bit with no one will save you but there is a a point in no one will save you and uh, where Bryn is looked upon by sympathetic alien eyes uh you know and i think that's that's a tra- transformation of course that we see I mean, that's that's what under the skin is about but there is that moment that i thought like okay here's another connection of just like of when they they finally 
are able to beam Bryn up to the to the ship and get into her head a little bit, they have some kind of response to her that that is different or presumably different than they have to anyone else uh, based on what they learn about her. So it feels like that that is a pretty strong connection between these two movies now yeah and it's you kind of see a little bit before we have the there's the insofar as you can read uh emotions on the on those classic alien faces there's a you know one that kind of looks at her with sympathy that kind of you know regards her as not just there to is at least going to take going to study this subject before doing what it does to all the humans that encounters it's it's there's i kind of wish there was a little bit more of that or it was a little more um uh, we got a, a few more details like that in the film where we have a little more insight as to, as to what these aliens want it because there is something clearly clearly this thing is happening in that moment even if we can't quite read what it is Honestly, it reminded me so much of the moment at the end of AI artificial intelligence, where the mm. you know spindly super future robots uh, all gather around David and realize what he is. It's you know kind of a, a symposium of aliens gather around her to figure out what her deal is. And I, again, it's ambiguous, and you could read it any way you like. But I kind of want to see a grudging respect. You know, predator style. She's she has killed enough of us that she's earned her place. Uh, she can have a happy little community because she's dangerous. <laughs> this one busts heads. We don't want to be around her. She will uh, she will harm us. Let's give her a community that will keep her docile and very far away from over here where we're eating mustard. They're inspired by her lust for life and death. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want another joke? There's uh, scenes on buses. <laughs> That's true. There are wow. menacing, menacing scenes on buses. Truly, yeah. yeah. Wow, where the uh, the main female character is approached by a man that she doesn't necessarily wish to be approached by and uh, has to deal with that on her own terms. Yeah. These are basically the same movie. I think that's what uh, I decided. The more we talk about it, these are basically the same movie. Yeah, we need you know, to have you come on more often and, and just find these little connections for us, Joe, because I, boy, was not looking at the details to this degree. Is there is there a cake-eating scene in uh, No One Will Save You that I've forgotten? Do we see her eat anything? I don't know that mm. we do. I, I feel like she makes herself a, a little meal at the beginning of the movie at some point when we're just kind of seeing her domestic life. <laughs> she does, but she I, does, I does think heat up water. Cake. But sadly, no, sp- no spaghetti goes inside there. <laughs> no. And no chocolate cake either. No, yeah. Yeah, she's got, four, I mean, a, a lot of pots for a single person. Four four nice uh, medium-sized pots that she can put water in. Anyway. Well, our understanding is that this is her family home. Presumably her, yeah. her parents, yeah. you know, spent more, yeah, much yeah. more time basting, making pasta than she does. <laughs> Maybe much more time making chocolate cake with spicy mustard. Her mother, which if I if I can just, I did get kind of a big laugh out of the huge amount of exposition that the gravestone was doing when she was sitting next to her mom's gravestone and it literally said, you know, mother of Bryn, this character is sitting right next to her. This is the mom's gravestone. Yeah. Oh, we, we we do get a lot of exposition via gravestone in this movie, yes. don't we? Because I mean, I think we, that's one of the you know one of the things that has to happen. When I also kind of felt that way about the letters is like if you're choosing for your film not to have any dialogue, you do kind of have to take a little bit of a sweaty route to get some of that information out of there. Yeah. So what else from this uh, film, Tasha? Well, I mean, lacking any any more like bus level connections because now now I really just want to 
pick through this for for tiny little uh, uh-huh. moments like that. I think it's significant that both of these films revolve around kind of big central mysteries where we just don't get, uh, despite the exposition by Gravestone, nobody ever sits down by a gravestone that says what the aliens secretly want is X and they're <laughs> willing to settle for Y. You know, we... We can make all kinds of guesses about why they're there, what they want, why they respond to Bryn differently. Why Bryn responds differently to them? Like, why is she the only person to uh, spit out the hideous throat thing? Does she have some genetic anomaly? Does she have some mental immunity? Like, is grief poisonous to horrific throat tentacle monsters? We don't know. And in the same kind of way, I, you know, I was, I was reading the Wikipedia summary of Under the Skin, and it completely avoids any kind of interpretation. So it's just like the man twitches underwater, and then we see some fluid in a pipe, <laughs> you know, just complete lack of interpretation. It also gets a plot detail wrong, but I guess it's a whole other, whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. It's uh, whatever. It's user supplied uh, information. But, you know, we, we, we know from the book that they're basically shipping human meat and skin back home to their planet. The movie never comes out and says that specifically. Like, for all we know, the aliens in Under the Skin just have a, a deep, inherent hatred of, uh, you know, naked, sexed up Glaswegian boys. I just I just uh, I just assumed that that uh, soccer hooligans were like a delicacy back on the uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, they they loathe them. It's the equivalent of uh, people in the Bahamas going out and killing lionfish because they're a particularly aggressive, invasive species. You know, maybe this alien race, whatever it is, is just trying to like curate humanity a little better. <laughs> Eliminating one soccer hooligan at a time. Uh, I think that I combination of, of lager and fish and chips uh, grease is uh, just irresistible <laughs> to certain types of aliens. They just they taste of testosterone and vinegar in a way that's like <laughs> specifically delicious. Babies not tasty at all. Uh, women not not delicious. It's got to be testosterone, mm. lager, do I, do I, and do uh, I detect sexism. This is really this is delicious. <laughs> you got a good one here. Although that said, I mean, none of the men in Underskin are all that bad. I, I could, I could easily I can, can see name another one. Yeah, <laughs> you think one very bad dude that was movie. bad? Looks pretty bad. I, I, I meant the men who get eaten. The Scottish you know, that, uh, guys that on man, the street. Oh right? no, no, they're not. No, they're not. I, I think they're just young dudes looking for a good time. I mean, I don't think there's yeah. anything wrong with that. And none of them, you know, none of them, like, grab her, manhandle her, say anything particularly sexist to her. Like, this is not a classic horror movie. Like, oh, that guy's a jerk. I will not miss him when he gets, Inevitably, you know, gets knifed destroyed, through yeah. the eyes yeah. by the knife eye killer. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's just, there's a, a lot of big mysteries and under the skin around why specifically they target the people they do? What specifically there is happening in that that besides floaty, spinny, skinning, skin death? You know, both of these movies just like live in their mysteries and I, I think are cooler for it and maybe more appealing than something that spelled out any of the details I'm talking about uh, would be. I agree. I, what what uh, reason could be satisfying? truly for for any of this yeah i mean that's and i appreciate that especially in sci-fi 
which I think works better typically with that mystery than when they try to over explain or explain anything at all. For sure. Under the Skin is currently streaming on Max. It's rentable through the various services. It's on DVD and Blu-ray. No One Will Save You is streaming on Hulu now. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or a film-related item that complements the set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Uh, Keith, we, we under the skin, you can't, there's really just only one film, I think, that you could really tie it closely to, right? I mean, it, it, what, what are you thinking of? With, uh, thinking, uh, I, I think we're both thinking of, of The Man Who Fell to Earth, the uh, Nicholas Rogue-directed 1976 science fiction classic starring David Bowie as a strange visitor from another planet who comes to ours in search of t- water to save his family and then kind of gets drawn into humanity and human existence in ways that bring him pleasure and ultimately proved to be his undoing. Uh, I, I think, you know, I could almost be describing under skin in some ways, although the, in other ways they're very different movies. Uh, Man of Hell Earth is, is very hallucinatory and, and kind of free associative in some ways in, the, in that Nicholas Rogue way, although I, I, I love the way he edits a film, so yeah. it ultimately en- ends up making sense or, you know, making a kind of poetic sense anyway when, when it all comes together. I mean, uh, in, I in David Bowie, the, the, I mean, you can't possibly have a better person to play an alien than David right. Bowie. Either I, I mean, I, you know, I I I really love the, the Man Who Fell to Earth, and it almost seems if you compare it to Under the Skin, it's just the amount of time that he's on Earth is is so much longer than the female in Under the Skin, and so his involvement with the rest of humanity, his corruption. Uh, by the uh, by being uh, you know a person and then and then just time just sort of like diminishing and destroying his original reason or his uh, for being there it's just it's so it's so like tragic but also it's kind of satirical it's just a fascinating movie have you seen this one joe have you ever seen uh the man who fell to earth no i i, I have not obviously I, i've heard about it um i'm a big fan of david bowie's music and this is you know uh, yeah outside of maybe it's, labyrinth it, like one of his big uh, acting performances uh in film but yeah this one in um merry christmas for lawrence i guess would be the one of the other other big bowie performances right is there anything else the hunger yeah, it's good it's good, it's good. Yeah. not bad it's very good not that. bad Bowie's good, but but, uh, but yeah, if if if, if anyone has uh, not seen the Man Who Fell to Earth, I mean, it is it's tremendous. I think one of the one of the really great science fiction movies of that of that era. Keith Keith has written about it as well, right? Uh, that was that was part of your uh, Dissolve series, was it not? The Laser Age column, yeah, I, I did actually, um, yeah, for sure. And we wrote about it recently at, at the reveal as part of our roundup of David Bowie. Uh, right. Yeah, we we so I, yeah, so we both saw it pretty recently, and uh, of course, you should go to the reveal to uh, to uh, if you want a little more in depth commentary on that movie. Uh, but f- see it first; it's fantastic. Also, you know, highly important if you did not get enough uh, casual superstar nudity from Under the Skin, Man Who yeah. Fell to Earth. It's That's your movie. True. Plenty of it. <laughs> So that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Keith, do you want to tell us about our next episodes? For our next episodes of The Next Picture Show, we'll be taking two perilous trips to the most remote stretches of Australia, inspired by the latest film by Kitty Green, director of The Assistant, 
which we covered a while back. First, we'll look at the 1971 cult classic Wake and Fright, in which a young school teacher finds himself unexpectedly spending some time in an outback mining town where he gets to know the locals and participates in some regional traditions. Then we'll discuss Green's latest, The Royal Hotel, in which Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick play Americans who explore the ups and downs of the hospitality industry when they take a job at an outback bar filled with threatening customers. We hope you'll join us. For now, we welcome your feedback on Under the Skin. No one will save you and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Uh, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, uh, Tasha? I, I don't know where we can find everyone, but I'll tell you where, where you can find, find me. I am the uh, film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. I'm in the process of writing a bunch of stuff about Fantastic Fest, which we hope to bring a an episode to the Patreon soon just about uh, – I. I saw so many good movies there this year. I am so you're all, excited. You're all blasé about it. I was like, ah, oh, there's probably not anything worth talking about. Whatever. I really Fantastic was fest. not going in like all revved up this year because there, there were just there were so few big movies and so many small movies. Man, some of those small movies are terrific. A lot of them are coming to theaters or streaming services uh, in the next couple of months. And I also got uh, as the secret screenings. I got to see um emerald finale's salt burn and uh the nicholas cage movie dream scenario early and well we'll get into it in the uh the patreon but <laughs> okay. boy do i have thoughts regardless you can find me on twitter at tasha robinson you can find me on blue sky at tasha robinson and if all goes well the night that they were, were recording this the this episode is uh, supposed to drop but you can find me doing a special guest episode of the authorized novelizations podcast keith you've done that in one, that one in the past have. haven't you yeah i i really enjoyed it it's it, it's uh the most amount of homework i think i've ever done for <laughs> podcast yeah, like, read a whole read a novelization what 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 are, what are you doing? What uh what what book are you covering? I I talked to them for nearly three hours. Oh. I I'm sure they'll cut it down, but we were having a really fun conversation about the novelization of The Cabin in the Woods, which hmm. is close to the movie in some ways and a big departure in others. Tasha Robinson favorite. What was your book, Keith? It was uh, a Sky Captain: The World of Tomorrow. Oh God. I need yeah. to listen to that uh, that episode. Keith, we now know where people can find you uh, in the Authorized Novelization podcast page. Where can they find you in the rest of your life? Well, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me uh, a lot of different places like uh, The Ringer and Vulture and GQ and TV Guide. You can find me m- most regularly at at the the, the, the Reveal, the, the newsletter I co-write with our, my co-host uh, Scott Tobias here. Uh, we do all kinds of great things on there where we can... And and well, I, I think they're great. I think you would enjoy them if you enjoy this. Uh, if you enjoy this uh, podcast, you'll probably enjoy that. Uh, in terms of uh, recent podcast appearances, too, I was on an episode of a podcast tonight's called Tonight's Musical Guest, which goes through the history of various musical acts uh, by way of their talk show appearances. And we talked to talked about REM for a probably not quite three hours, but we were there on there for a oh while. God. A lot to talk about there. So that's tonight's musical guest. Um, Scott, how about you? Yeah, so so you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Scott underscore Tobias at Blue Blue Sky. I, there's no underscore. It's just Scott Tobias, um, and uh, 
you can find my work, of course, at The Reveal and also at The New York Times, at um, Vulture, uh, at Guardian, other fine publications. Uh, Joe, our special guest. And, uh, and permanent co-host. We're, we're permanent slash, <laughs> slash permanent only host. Uh, so we you have uh, I, we want to know where you are and we also want to know a little bit about uh, this album that you have uh, coming out as well yeah so I'm I'm very excited I have a sketch album coming out called funny songs and sketches it is just that uh, it is in the kind of tradition of the Adam Sandler tenacious D albums. I felt like there hadn't been one of those in a while and uh, I worked really hard on it for about a year or so and it's uh, it's finally out. I hope people will check it out. It's got a lot of special guests on it that I would imagine your listeners would know. Patton Oswalt, Iowa Debris, David Cross, Sal Madrigal, Andy Richter. Oh my gosh. Uh, a bunch of very funny people, very kind. James Austin Johnson, who I saw do stand up this summer, was very Yes, funny. James uh, has been a, a good friend of mine for a very long time, and now I get to abuse his fame uh, for my own projects. Uh, before, when I put him in stuff, <laughs> it, it, it didn't mean as much, but now I can use it as a selling point. So that's available wherever you, you listen to stuff, but I would direct people to my social media where you can find the appropriate links to, to either buy or stream that album, and that's Joe K. Joe K. on Twitter, Joe Qua on TikTok and Instagram, and also those places will direct you towards my uh, many sketches that I've put out. They will direct you towards the stand-up specials I have on YouTube, both my Comedy Central special and especially I put out this last year through Helium called Recommended Based on Your Search History. Yeah. And it sounded like, as far as your YouTube channel sketches go, uh, Keith and Scott had a specific recommendation that they especially loved. Is that a good starting point? Uh, you know, I maybe. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's funny. I do a lot of uh, sketches that are meant to mimic the style, maybe, of a movie uh, genre and then kind of subvert the expectations from there. Uh, whether it's a trailer uh, about a biopic of Charles Manson that's maybe a little <laughs> too glowing or, you know, a sketch that it seems like it's a, a Terminator type uh, character that I'm playing, but then I, uh, you know, something gets a little wacky. So I don't know exactly where people can can start because there is a lot of it. It used to be my thing was dropping dozens of sketches at once, but there's plenty for people to peruse if they're bored. My daughter has has attempted bits of the of the uh, uh, of the tainted love tutorial as well, so people can. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's amazing! People want to check that out. <laughs> I love that because uh, uh, she she loves the song, and I was like, "Oh, you got to see this!" Oh, <laughs> so, perfect! Well, we had a good time watching that together. Um, so yeah, totally worth checking out Joe's comedy. He's fantastic. As for our absent co-host uh, Genevieve Kosky, you can find her at Genevieve Kosky on, on Twitter. Um, she's also, uh, she mostly Instagrams these days, puts up pictures of her dogs. How, um, how was her comedy? I mean, I, it, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm too familiar I, with it. That's what's going to happen do it. as I become permanent co-host. She is going to have to live the life of a stand-up comedian, and I hope she's ready for it. <laughs> how, how tight is her five? Yeah, it remains to be we'll seen. See. Uh, so, uh, but you could, she's she's also the the senior uh, TV editor at Vulture. Uh, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net, on Twitter at nextpicturepod, and on Blue Sky at the Next Picture Show. Get bonus content and open discussion at Patreon.com/slash/nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. 
Uh, thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for assistance producing this podcast. Uh, thanks, of course, again to Joe for appearing uh, on this podcast. And the next picture show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.